start out with a little bit of review because the genealogies, the, the family lines, play an important role in the history of the Israelite nation as well as the history and ministry of Jesus. We started with Adam, and the best son who survived, the holiest son, was named Seth. And from Seth, do you remember the name of the, the person who was so holy he was assumed directly into heaven? Enoch. From Enoch's line came Noah, and remember the name of the son of Noah who he blessed and said that a deliverer would come from his line? Shem. Today, we're going to be talking about one of Shem's descendants named Terah, and he was the father of Abraham. Terah actually had a very important role because, first of all, he fathered Abraham, and we all know how holy of a man Abraham was. He must have had a pretty good set of parents, parents who loved the Lord, in order to raise a son like Abraham. Well, Terah loved the Lord so much, he heard the call from the Lord to leave the land where he had grown up in and his descendants came from. Terah was raising his family where he had been raised, in a land that was surrounded by belief in many gods. We have just this line that is really the one that's focused on worship of the one God. And Terah heard the call from God to leave this atmosphere of pagan worship because God was now saying, it's time to begin to call a people out of the rest of them to build them up into my own special people. So it's not just one family line, not just a few people who are knowing me and loving me and serving me, but it's a whole nation that God was about to create. Can you find on your maps the town of Ur? You are Ur. You see where Ur is? If you draw a line on here that shows where the family traveled. Notice how Ur is near Babylon. Remember yesterday when we were talking about King Nimrod was the first one who brought tribes together or clans together to form a kingdom. And his kingdom included Babylon and Nineveh. Can you see where Nineveh is on the map? It's further up, up the Tigris River. This map, by the way, also shows modern-day where everything is. So you can see Iran, Iraq, Turkey. So you can get an idea of what these places are called now. So Ur, so close to Babylon, which is where astrology was invented and a lot of pagan worship was big time, Terah heard God say, get out of there and travel to a place where you can become by yourselves my own people. He left Ur to head to Canaan. The goal was Canaan, where Canaan's people had populated the area, which we know is what area? Where the Canaanites dwelled became later Palestine. On the map, you can see where Palestine area is. If you look where it says Lebanon, and down from there, see it says Israel? That territory, basically. Yeah, it's quite a distance. As a matter of fact, it was, well, the first journey was up to Haran. That was a 600-mile trek up the Euphrates River. If you travel up the Euphrates River on your map and you come to a fork in a river near the top of it, just inside that fork is Haran. Haran is spelled H-A-R-A-N. That's a 600-mile trek that they took on foot. Terah 
well, let me tell you who he took with him. Okay, he took his two sons, and one of those sons was Abram. Remember at the time, Abraham was not yet named Abraham. He was Abram, A-B-R-A-M. And his wife, what was her name? Sarah, but at the time she was Sarai, S-A-R-A-I. And I'll explain why the names got changed when we get a little bit further down into the history story. So he took Abram and Abram's brother and their wives, and he had a third son who I don't know if he was dead at this point or he just didn't want to go along on this trip. I assume he was dead because they took along this third son's son whose name was Lot. This part of the story can be found in Genesis 11, verses 27 to 32. Oh, here's in my notes how far away Canaan was. It was a thousand-mile journey. They went up the Euphrates River to Haran and quit. They got tired after 600 miles. They traveled along the river to sustain life and then trekked down. So right now, we've only drawn our line up to Haran because that's where they stopped on their journey. By the way, this happened 2,000 years before Christ. They settled down in Haran When Terah gets old and dies, Abram, who is close to the Lord, decides to finish the Lord's calling upon his family and take the family now all the rest of the way to Canaan. So if you were to draw your line from Haran down to the El at Lebanon, and from there following the shore, so to speak, of the Mediterranean Sea, down to somewhere between Tel Aviv and Jericho, Somewhere around in that area is where Abram and his gang traveled to. Somewhere in the center of Canaan is where they went to. And when Abram got there, God said to him, Abram, to your offspring I give this land. He didn't say, Abram, this is your land. Settle here. Abram didn't stay there. But he said, to your offspring I will give this land. Abram saw that this land was full of very unfriendly Canaanites, so he moved on farther south to harsher land because in his confidence in the Lord, he knew he could survive in the harsh land, and the Canaanites did not want anything to do with that harsh land, so they let Abram go and take all the territory down there that he wanted. And Abram, because he was trusting in God, was very, very successful living in that area didn't matter that the land was harsh. He did an excellent job. The flocks multiplied, and he became a very wealthy person. And God made a sevenfold promise to Abram. And this is found in in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. God said, I will make you into a great nation. Now keep in mind he'd been married for a while, and they still did not have any kids. God said, I will bless you. Number three, I will make your name great. And the word name in Scripture, whenever we see the word name in Scripture, the name of God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Abram's name was going to be made great. The word name means a lot more than just something we write on a uh, name tag. The word name represented everything about that person. So, for example, when we pray something in the name of Jesus, we're praying in the whole of Jesus. Everything that he did for us, all of his love for us. When we tag that on at the end of our prayers, 
I pray this in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're praying in the totality of who God is. With all of his love going into this prayer and our needs, with all of his power, with all of his wisdom and knowledge, all of that is just being put into our prayer power. Isn't that awesome? Prayer power? Just by saying in the name of Jesus. Of course, we could say it as a ritual and don't realize what we're meaning and miss out on some of that power. So when God said to Abram, I will make your name great, see, it meant a lot more than just, okay, down through the centuries, everybody's going to know Abraham by name. It's going to be a household word. It meant that his whole clan was going to be great. His whole, everything about him was going to be great. He would be a role model for the rest of the world to follow all through history. God also said, uh, the fourth promise, you will be a blessing to others. And then God said, I will bless those who bless you. And the sixth one, I will curse those who curse you. In other words, I'm going to protect you. And seven, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. How are all peoples on earth blessed through Abraham? The descendants. First, the Israelite nation, and the Israelite nation brings to the world the Savior. So see, God's got his plan B working. Remember yesterday I said plan A was the Garden of Eden without sin entering. When sin entered, he said, okay, let's do plan B. So God's working big time on plan B, preparing the way here. When God makes promises like the sevenfold promise he just gave to Abraham, he expects something in return. It's a covenant. The covenant means what? I am God and you are my people. So the sevenfold promise is how God is saying, here, here's proof. I am your God. You'll know it because I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Now what I want back from you is... Well, first of all, let's not get to the circumcision issue right away. The first thing, the core of it behind the circumcision issue was trust. God is saying, from you, Abram, what I want back is trust. Because trust is going to play a key role in the Israelites getting to where they're supposed to go in the future, providing the Messiah to the world. We know enough about the Israelites already without me getting into the story to remember that the Israelites screwed up a lot, right? They forgot to trust God. A lot of times they turned their backs on God. Remember when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments and he was gone for 40 days? And the people thought, he's not coming back. Let's build a golden calf. Let's have a pagan party, an orgy down here. Let's have some fun because our... Our leader has abandoned us, so let's stop trying to do things his way and let's go back to the old Egyptian ways. And they stopped trusting God and they got into big trouble for that, as we're going to see later on. So God is beginning to really start to emphasize the need to trust him. And of course, as we listen to God telling Abram and all the other people that come along, the need and importance of trusting God, who else is he speaking to about trust? Us. Remember, this is our story. This is not just the story of Abram. This is not just the story of the Israelites. This is not just someone else in the Bible. This is our story too. So God began to train Abram how to trust and obey him and to trust him no matter what. 
As I said, Abram had grown prosperous, but he still lacked the promised offspring. If God was going to make his descendants as numerous as the grains of sand and the stars in the sky, he needed to have a kid, right? So, in Genesis chapter 16, Abram has been waiting many, many years now. God's been teaching him about trust. Abram's been trusting in God. He's been growing prosperous, but he's saying, hey, wait a minute, God. Remember what you said about the grains of sand and everything? You made me prosperous in everything except children. When are you going to give me children? And Abram discovered that the only thing worse than waiting on God was not waiting on God. Remember what he did? He took matters into his own hands through the suggestion of his wife, Sarai. And who did he become a father through then? Remember her name? Hagar. Hagar. Took matters into their own hands. Hagar was Sarai's handmaid. She became a surrogate mom. It created a domestic nightmare. There was a lot of jealousy. Sarai just got so jealous that it wasn't her that bore this son to Abram. And this son's name was Ishmael. Out of Ishmael came what we now know as the Arabs. The Arab nation descended from Ishmael. And the Arab nation has always been fighting the Israel nation, haven't they? Now imagine what the world would be like if Abram and Sarai had chosen to just trust God and not take matters into their own hands. Ishmael never would have been born. The whole look of that part of the world, the Middle East, would be a lot different today. So see, some of our decisions, when we stop trusting God and take matters into our own hands, you never know the consequences and how big that ripple effect can get. Remember that the next time we're tempted, you know. <laughs> Lord, I'm getting tired. I think I'm going to do this myself. Meanwhile, you know, God's putting up with this. He's, he allows, I mean, he could have kept Hagar from conceiving, but God never takes away our free will, and he's saying, okay, you want to do it this way? Go ahead, conceive a son. Not a girl, a son. You want a son? Here, have your son. You're going to regret it, though. And Hagar kept rubbing it in to Sarai that, I was able to get pregnant and deliver a, a boy child, and you were not able to do that. I'm better than you, and you think I'm your slave, but look how much better than you I am. You know? Boy, Sarai got a little ticked, to say the least. And while this was all going on, God is still speaking to Abram about the promises and about the covenant and about the need to trust. In Genesis chapter 17, God explains this covenant further. By the way, we're on covenant number three now. The first covenant took place where? The Garden of Eden. The second covenant, do you remember when that took place? Noah, symbolized by the rainbow and all that. So now we're at a covenant where God is taking things a step farther. He is saying in Genesis 17, he's reiterating the sevenfold promise. He's saying, you will become the father of many nations. Then he goes on to say, kings will come from your line. Kings. Not just your name will be made great, but let's get more specific here. Kings will come from your line. And then he repeats part of what a covenant means. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants. And then he says, again, what he had said earlier, I will give you the land of Canaan as your permanent home. And then he says, in return, here's your part of the deal, choose me, 
let me be your God. Choose to be my people. And to show that you have made this choice, mark yourself that you belong to me by being circumcised. What a circumcision meant, because it was a cutting off of the foreskin, why not just we wear our hair differently? Or why not put a, a seal on our forehead? Why circumcision? Because it meant something. It was a symbol of, if I am not faithful to Yahweh, may he cut off me and my offspring, as I have cut off my foreskin. At that point in time, because he had just instituted the ritual of circumcision, God marked this as an important event, as a turning point in the history of the Israelites by changing the name of Abram and Sarai. And the way he did it was, remember the name of Yahweh and how it was spelled without any vowels in it. The two H's in here, it's Y-H-W-H. Well, he took the name Abram, put an H into it, and made Abraham. And he took the name Sarai and put an H into it and made Sarah. He gave a part of his own name, his holy name. Remember the meaning of what name means? He gave a part of his holy name to Abraham and Sarah as a part of this covenant. This means, by the way, that Abram, Abraham now, has now just been converted to Judaism. And the first pure Jew was his son, yet to be born, his son Isaac. The name Abraham means father of many. Abram, that name meant exalted father. See the difference? Father of many, which is, aside from just getting a part of God's name into his name, it is also a reiteration of the promise that many descendants would come from him. The name Sarah means princess, meaning she would be the mother of, of kings, and she'd be the mother of nations. And who does that remind us of? Mary. It was a foreshadowing of Mary. In Genesis chapter 18, God pays a visit to Abraham, a flesh and blood visit. And in some ways we could say this was the pre-incarnation of Jesus. Jesus is God made flesh. For a little while he appeared, God appeared to Abraham in the flesh. If you don't believe it, let's look it up. Genesis 18, verse 1 says, The Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinth of Mamre as he sat in the entrance of his tent while the day was growing hot. Looking up, he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to greet them, and bowing to the ground, he said, Sir, if I may ask you this favor, please do not go past your servant. And then he offers to give him water and to bathe his feet and give them rest under the tree and feed him, refresh him, in other words. And Abraham takes care of their needs. At this point in time, these three men. Look at verse 13 before I say that, though. The Lord said to Abraham, this is an indication that amongst those three, one of them was the Lord. A lot of times angels in the Old Testament are the ones who appear, but they're speaking for God, so the human that they're speaking to addresses the angel as the Lord God, even though he's not literally calling the angel God. So that could have been what's happening here, or it could have been, more literally, the pre-incarnation of Jesus. This is just some possibilities here. 
But what we know is that the Lord visited Abraham and spoke to him directly. And one of the things that he says, verse 9, Where is your wife Sarah? In the tent. By the way, notice this is three men visiting. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it is representative. The number three represents God. One of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will then have a son. Remember what happened? What did Sarah do? Yeah, she laughed. She didn't believe it. You know, she was past her prime, so to speak. It says in verse 11, they were old, advanced in years, and Sarah had stopped having her womenly periods. She said, I'm so withered, and my husband is so old. But the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? In other words, where's this trust that I've been teaching you guys? Is anything too marvelous for the Lord to do? Verse 14. At the appointed time, about this time next year, I will return to you, and Sarah will have a son. Because she was afraid, Sarah said, I didn't laugh. Oh, yes, you did. You don't need to lie. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden again. Let's hide from God. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So at this point right here, we see the promise that God is giving about that son. The next thing that happens in that chapter is God reveals to Abraham that he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We know why. It was a really evil place. I mean, big time evil. The only good person in either of those two places was Lot and a couple of the members of his family. A lot of the members of his family were just all caught up in the worldliness. Now, what had happened was, let me back up a little bit. When Abram brought Lot and the rest of the clan into Canaan, and took over that harsh territory just south of Canaan. Lot said, I don't want to do all this hard work. I want an easier lifestyle. I'm moving to the city. How many moved here because of all the conveniences around? I know I did. (laughs) I don't want to live, you know, way out in some little town. I mean, there's some really beautiful, quaint little towns. The northern part of our diocese has a lot of open space. A lot of long distances between 7-Elevens. But we chose to live right here in the middle of everything. And we're glad to be here. But it is a lot in part because we chose the conveniences. The lot said, I'm going to choose the convenience of living in the city. And God's saying, "Uh, are you sure you want to do that? And surround yourself by all the worldliness that's there. I'm just beginning to train you people into what trusting me is really all about. I'm just beginning to help you understand who I am and who you are to me. You sure you want to go expose? I mean, I pulled your grandfather out of Ur to separate you guys from the world. And now you want to go back into the world? And Lot said, yep, you betcha. So he did and suffered the consequences because God said, look, The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are corrupting the rest of the world. Their influence is spreading, and they're as evil as the people were in Noah's time. There's no good going on there. These three guys, one of them being God, is walking with Abraham and telling him this. And Abraham says, oh my gosh, don't destroy those towns. What if if there's 50 good people there? Why kill them too? Well, God says, well, okay. I won't do it if there's 50. Well, what if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? Let's keep pushing God here. 
But God wanted that because he wanted to see how much Abraham cared. God didn't need Abraham to change his mind. God already loved those few good people that were still in Sodom and Gomorrah. So God, knowing full well that Lot was the holiest person in Sodom, by the way, that's where we get the word Sodomites from, sodomy, gives you an idea about some of the corruption and perversion taking place in that town. And this is where Lot was raising his family, his grandchildren. So God agrees with Abraham to rescue the few good people out of Sodom before he destroys it. And God sends angels to Lot to say, come on, get out of here quick. Judgment is falling upon this town. Get out quick. Oh, but, you know, we've, we've got my daughters are married to sons-in-laws who are, are sodomites. They don't want to leave. Uh, we've got everything going for us here. We've, this is where we belong. This is our home. I don't want to move. And the angels say, you better move. So Lot agrees. Does his wife, what do we know about his wife? Lot was being tested. This is in chapter 19. Lot was being tested to show how loyal he was to God. He had been seduced by the pleasures of city life. He stayed there because he was convinced that evil was not going to influence his family. However, it did influence them enough that some of his family stayed behind and ended up being destroyed. And his own wife really didn't want to leave. She left because her husband told her to leave. The reason why she got turned into a pillar of salt was because it's a story that shows where her heart was. She didn't really want to leave. She turned back to look towards the city because she really wanted to be there. She really preferred that life that was there, the people that were there. She preferred that over God and her own husband. Whether she literally got turned into a pillar of salt doesn't matter. We don't know. We don't have to take it literally. But the point is, she was destroyed by her longings to be where evil was instead of where God dwelled. And what happened to Lot, because he had chosen to go to the city, and Abraham was living a very simple life and getting prosperous. Lot chose to find his wealth in the city and ended up living with no wealth at all in a cave his wife dead, his sons-in-law destroyed in Sodom. Our choices make a big difference in how our lives turn out. That was Lot's test. Then comes Abraham's test. Isaac is born. Isaac grows up. He's a nice young man. And God says, Okay, Abraham, remember what I told you about your descendants numbering as many as the stars, as many as the grains of sand. Well, I want you to go and sacrifice your only chance for that promise coming true. Would you trust me enough to go and sacrifice your son to me? But God, you can just imagine Abraham saying this, but God, you don't like human sacrifices. You say life is valuable. You know, we're we're to sacrifice animals to you, but not humans. The pagans out there sacrifice humans. And you say, no, no, that's not right. That's not good. That's not loving. So you want me to sacrifice my son? Abraham, I'm speaking to you. Will you trust me? Okay, God, I will trust you. So they take a journey. Abraham gets his son and slaves to go along to carry the luggage. And Isaac is going along. Okay, this is cool. We're going to make a special sacrifice to God. The road they traveled, the area they covered, later 
became known as the Via Della Rosa, the road to Calvary. The same way that Abraham and Isaac walked on the way to this sacrifice is the same place that Jesus walked on the way to his sacrifice. Isn't this neat? The reason why Isaac went along with this is because Abraham was already training him well in love of God and trust in God. And Isaac trusted both God and his own father. So he went along with this. He didn't know that he was the chosen sacrifice. He did notice that there was no sheep being brought along for the sacrifice. We figured, ah, Dad's got that all figured out. I'm not going to worry about it. When they get up there and create the altar, and Isaac says, okay, Dad, now's the time to uh, produce this uh, sacrificial lamb. Where is it? Abraham's answer, God will provide the lamb. Those were his words. God will provide the lamb. Who's the lamb God provided? Jesus. He didn't say God will provide the the ram or God will provide uh, a goat or turtle doves or whatever. He said God will provide the lamb. And we know what happened. I mean, Abraham's test of trust went all the way down to the last second. Have you ever noticed that when we're waiting on God to do something, he waits till the last second? It's a test of trust. That's what he was doing with Abraham and Isaac. I mean, I would think that if Isaac didn't have trust, he would have needed some real therapy after this. We know that God provided the sacrificial animal. It was caught in a thorn bush. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus' crown. And because Abraham proved to God that nothing was more important to him than God, not even his beloved son, not even his dreams of greatness, Abraham then could become the father of God's people. And in this act of being willing to sacrifice his son, who is he modeling to us? Not Jesus. Not Mary. He's a father sacrificing his son, God the Father. God the Father. He's showing us, he's teaching us. Scriptures in this are teaching us what God the Father's love is like, what God the Father's trust is like. Except because Abraham wasn't God the Father and Isaac wasn't Jesus, God said, no, let's stop the sacrifice now. Let's bring in a substitute. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit GNM.org today.